Welcome to week two of GCF. We are starting a four-week series looking at uh, what's called gospel distinctions. Uh, what makes the gospel distinct from everything else? In college, in these four years uh, or more, uh, you are going to be exposed to a lot of different things. And what is it? A lot of different things we want to hang our hopes on, a lot of different things we want to satisfy us. But what is it that makes the gospel distinct from those? Why is the gospel, why is the good news of Jesus important to you? What difference does that make in your life. And so in four weeks, we're going to look at four contrasts. And today we're going to look of the, the theme of sin as a disease and the gospel as a healer. And our culture is, is really fascinated with uh, the mystery of diseases, aren't we? I mean, from zombie movies to post-apocalyptic thrillers to dramatic novels, there's this, this uh, shroud of mystery that always accompanies diseases. And it intrigues us and it scares us because disease isn't something that we can control. It's just something we got to hope to avoid at some point in our lives. Disease is something that's bigger than us and we feel, we feel weak. We feel helpless in the face of it. And culture plays off that, and it excites us, and it thrills us, and it scares us all at the same time. But one thing I've noticed in my conversations with people uh, just about disease, you know, you always play the would you rather type games, or you just talk about, um, you, you see loved ones suffer. You, you talk about uh, your hopes and your fears in life. And what I've realized is that most, the diseases people fear the most aren't the ones that just sneak in and kill quickly. They're the ones that slowly tap your quality of life, and your life begins to suffer because of it. Oftentimes, we would rather have cancer than be bound to a wheelchair. Oftentimes, we would we'd rather die quickly from something like Ebola than slowly become blind and lose our senses or be unable to move. And that's because at some level, we all know we're going to die, right? We've all accepted that. So if death comes quicker than us, but our quality of life stays high, that's something we can, we can wrestle with, but it comes easier to accept but we know because we're going to die one day, we want our life to be full of adventure. We want our life to be full of excitement and meaning and drama and intrigue and joy and satisfaction. And so we take all of our faculties, all of our, our hands and our legs and our hearts and our tongues and our eyes, and we go full bore into the world wanting to have this extreme. We want our life to be like an Instagram portrait of excitement. We want it to look like a life spent lived. We want it to have meaning and merit. We want our life to be driven by experience and joy. And oftentimes what we fear most is not a life ended, but a life paused. A life kind of where you just sit and you're static and you can't do anything and you're hindered from doing what you want to love. And this is one of the reasons why people come to college. A lot of people come to college not knowing fully what they want to do, but they know that college is going to expose them to things. That's even more of a reason why people come to Montana. People want to come to a university in the mountains. They want to climb mountains. They want to go skiing. They want to have the Montana experience because you could go to college at Portland State and live in the middle of a downtown area, or you could come and be in the mountains and the wilderness and the open air and the big sky. There's this aura of, of something existential that comes with our college years. We want to find something. We want to live something. We want to do something. And it's because we're afraid that we're going to miss out, isn't it? We're afraid that if we do something different, if we do something or if something happens to us that slows our life, we're going to miss out on something. Um, one of my friends was just telling me a story the other week of an, a former Olympic swimmer named Amy Van Dyken. Does anyone know this story? 
Um, so Amy Van Dyken, she was uh, an Olympic medalist in the 96 Olympics and in the 2000 Olympics, really successful American swimmer. Um, but in 2004, she was in an ATV accident. In the accident, her spine was severed and she was basically paralyzed from the waist up. And uh, because I love watching Oprah, I saw this interview with her and uh, I wasn't watching Oprah uh, for the record. I only do that when people aren't looking. And so uh, I was watching this Oprah interview with her and she said that uh, someone asked her, what, what's it like to be paralyzed? She said, it's, it's really not that bad. <laughs> she says, I get nice handicap parking. I get nicer seats to things. She says, I really don't feel paralyzed. I carry uh, controls for cars wherever I travel and I can drive wherever I go. She says, but I'm terrified to get near a pool because I can't swim anymore. I don't feel paralyzed anywhere else I don't feel crippled anywhere else. I don't feel handicapped anywhere else. But when I get near the pool, I feel helpless. It's because this pool was once where she found that experience. She found that joy. She found that life. And now she looks at it as something which she can never have again. And sure, she has this great life out here. But the thing that once captivated her and sustained her is now held off at a distance that she can never get back into again. She can never have that experience and she could get all sorts of medical help and medicine, and she could get all sorts of kind of modified mobility aids. But without ever being healed, she will never experience that joy of the pool again. She will never have that satisfying feeling of cutting through the water in a race. For her, she can't access what proves to be one of the larger portions of her life. And what we're going to discuss tonight is the truth that society or culture or even this university, what they try to sell you is a good parking spot to the show. But what the gospel tries to give you and gives you successfully is new legs to get back into the pool. It changes everything. And what we're going to see is that tonight, here's kind of the statement we're going to go off of, is that the world is a sick place offering no cure to our disease. The world itself is sick. So it can't offer a cure to our disease, but the gospel is both the better doctor and the only healer. The thing which the world offers as good can't do anything, but the gospel is better and the gospel is a true healer. And so I want to pray and then we're going to dive in uh, to Psalm 107 tonight. So Lord, uh, we come before you um, knowing that we need you. And we, we need you whether we realize we need you or not. And so, Lord, we ask that you're kind to us in hearing these words. Lord, we ask that tonight we get a greater understanding of what happens in salvation so that we can respond rightly in salvation. I pray you paint a picture of the healing you give us through the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way where not only do we want to take it for ourselves, but we want to run to the world with the knowledge of the cure that we want to proclaim across the oval, we want to proclaim from the tops of Mount Sentinel that Jesus has come to heal us of our greatest disease and to solve our ultimate problem. So Lord, we give you this time, we give you our ears as we listen and our hearts as we apply this. We know that you are a good God and we thank you for tonight. We pray this in your name, amen. So uh, to frame our talk tonight, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them up. If you have it on your phone, you can do that, or you can just stare at the giant screen behind my head. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 107. And Psalm 107 is the psalm that's, that's titled, <clears throat> Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So. And so what the psalmist is doing here is he's reflecting on his salvation. 
He's saying, this is what our salvation, this is what God accomplished in our salvation, and this is how we respond to that salvation. And it communicates both our need and God's providence in providing help for that need. And it's no surprise um, that in this great psalm, it's 43 verses long, but in verses 17 through 22, it deals with the issue of disease, sickness, and healing. And part of that's because early on in the Bible, starting in Exodus 15, a passage we at church uh, looked at, I think, three weeks ago, God self-identifies himself as a healer. He says, for I am your healer. And so here we have the God of the universe choosing to use words, which he created, to tell us that he's a healer. Now, why is that important? It's important because all of scripture seems to testify to this innate brokenness, this innate disease inside of humanity. And that's actually what Psalm 107 starts to talk about in verses 17 and 18. This is how it begins. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, that's just another word for sin, because of their sin, they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. You see, I don't, I don't know if, uh, how many of you guys are Christian here, how many of you guys have had much experience evangelizing or sharing your faith with people, but one of the main excuses people give to church, to Jesus, to the gospel, to religion, to whatever it is that they feel culture is trying to peddle to them, the excuse is that they don't need it, Right? You've heard the phrase, religion's for the weak. I'm not the weak. I don't need it. Religion is someone for people who need faith to get them through hard times. But it's interesting to take this disease or what the psalmist says here, these afflictions, and see what the medical world says about diseases in general. In one medical journal, uh, there's this article called, What is a Disease? And there's this huge uh, area of study trying to decide, what is a disease? How do we qualify what's a legitimate disease? And in this article, it says this. It says it's genuinely the case that diseases will be poorly diagnosed until they've been properly characterized. Diseases will be impossible to treat until we know what the disease is, until we know what the symptoms are like. And then the author then goes on to say that any sort of language we use in describing diseases or any sort of criteria we use to say this is a disease, it's not just a medical decision. She says it's actually an ethical decision on human identity. I found that really interesting. That here we have this medical field trying to diagnose what's wrong with humanity, and they say that, that anything we qualify as a disease actually speaks to the heart of what is human. What is human? And this made sense because I was just talking to, I know zero things about medicine. Um, and so I was talking to my buddy who just graduated. He went here and did uh, pre-med and went to Washington. Now he's at Vanderbilt. Um, really smart guy. And he, uh, so I texted him. I said, how do they teach you medicine? He says, what they do is they teach you how a normal body works. You spend so much time memorizing and learning what a standard function to a human body is. And then once you know what a normal body is and how a normal body should act, then you can begin to see and understand how you deal with bodies when they don't work normally. You start with what's normal, and then you can identify things which are outside of that. And the problem is, even inside the medical world, is we don't know what normal is. There's no one standard of what human bodies should be. I saw that, uh, I had a kid in my class that was double jointed when I was little and he would do like, can anyone do the, like pull your arms up and around thing? Can anyone do that in here? 
because we used to think it was cool, but it's actually a disease now. It's, it's bad for you. They've, they've looked at human bodies and they say it's not just a freaky thing. They said it's actually a disease. And the same thing is true um, with uh, frailty in the elderly. Up until 1996, it was thought that becoming extremely frail and breaking your bones as you get older is just part of getting old. They said this is what's normal. But it wasn't until 1996 when a study connected that to the study of pathology that that extreme frailty was actually called osteoporosis. And once it was diagnosed as a disease, then this whole area of study began to find a cure for it. But it was only because they identified what was normal and they said, this actually isn't normal. This shouldn't be happening. This isn't the case. So now let's try to find the cure for that. And we too, in our own life, have a skewed perspective and false confidence about what we think is normal. We think we're healthy, we think we're okay, we don't think we have a very big problem. And if you went out on the Oval and you did man on the street stuff, and you asked people, what do you think the greatest problem in humanity is? They would say, global warming, Islamic terrorism, the economy, Zika virus. There are all these things that exist outside of us. They're on the outside that are threatening, that are kind of connected to humanity, but on one side it's just this earth is, is doing weird things and it's dangerous. And this is what the psalmist is talking about here. This kind of lack of awareness for what's going on. Because here the psalmist says is that we have sick people. A people who are sick with their own transgressions, sick with their own sins, who are suffering because of it. And yet they're rejecting the food. They don't realize they're sick. They don't realize that the very thing that they're suffering from can be, can be limited by the strength we get in eating food, right? It's chicken soup for the sick soul or something like that. And so he's saying these people are sick and they are suffering, but they loathe food because they don't realize that it's food that gives them the strength to fight. And it's because they don't actually think that they're sick. And this is the first point we're going to look at tonight, is that our disease has deadened us. In this instance, the people aren't like, I'm sick and this food is the cure, but it tastes horrible. My three-year-old son does that. When he's sick, he will not take medicine because it tastes horrible. He knows he's sick, he knows he's miserable, but he will refuse that medicine until he just vomits his guts out. But these people are saying, I'm not sick, I don't need medicine, I don't need help, I don't need food, I don't need sustenance, and that's exactly because their sickness has blinded them to this reality. They don't actually know they're sick. If you look at how the Bible talks about us, it uses words, but outside of Christ, it calls us blind. It calls us numb. It says in, uh, it's, it says in the New Testament that our consciousness have been seared. It's been burned so we can't feel. It calls us dead. And this is why one of the co most common phrases in the Old Testament prophets, when the prophets are proclaiming to a world that they should come back to God, they say to the false prophets, they say this common line, it says, you have healed our wounds lightly, proclaiming peace when there is no peace. And so they're saying, you're telling everyone it's okay, but it's not okay. You're sick, you're dying, you're suffering. And to take a dying person and say, you're okay, that doesn't heal anything. That doesn't solve anything anything. And in our world and in our books and on TV and in our movies and even in our own hearts, we try to tell ourselves we're all okay. That it's okay. That I'm just like everyone else. That the real problems in this world are cancer and racism and global warming and hate. 
But have you ever thought about what the biggest problem is? Why does no one ever answer, I'm going to die? Right? The biggest problem is that you're going to die. No matter how the world ends up, no matter how racism gets resolved, you're going to die. And everyone looks at that and they've grown to not be amazed at it. No one says the greatest problem is one day I'm going to die. Because we've all accepted that. But we accept that because we assume that this is normal. We look at all of humanity and we say, well, people die, so it's normal that we should die. It's normal that we should have issues. It's normal that we should just stop existing someday. But it's not. It's not normal for humans to die because that's not how we were created. When God created us, he created us to live forever with him in his kingdom. He created us in a world where not only would we live forever, but we would never suffer with cancer. We would never suffer with hate. We would never suffer with poverty or discrimination or any of the things we look at today as problems and and symptoms in our own dying world. You see, this world that we live in, God didn't create this world. He created a perfect world and sin ruined it. You see, when Adam and Eve lived in the garden, they had perfection. We talked about this really briefly last week. They were going to live forever. There was nothing to disrupt their relationship with God. And God said, live with me, live in front of me, get married, have babies, fill the earth with people who get to spend eternity in the wonderful presence of a good God. In a garden where you could have any tree to eat and you could ride on the back of llamas and tigers for as much as you want. The world that that C.S. Lewis describes in Narnia, that could have been our existence forever. But they sinned. They chose to rebel against God. And in that moment, in Genesis 3, we see what's called the curse. And in that curse, sin began its reign. And it worked its way into the bones of humanity. And this brokenness is why our bodies break down. This brokenness is why cancer cells exist. And more importantly though, it's this brokenness that limits us from true life. It's this brokenness, this problem of sin, this severed relationship with God, that's what keeps you out of the pool. That's the problem that holds satisfaction just near enough to where we always want it, but just far enough to where we can never have it. But then Jesus came. And Jesus came and he didn't fall prey to the everyone is okay line. And that's why Jesus went to the sick. Jesus' earthly ministry here was not spent in the isolated castle of the people who were perfect, but he went to those who were broken. He came into the world wanting to proclaim the right diagnosis. He wanted to tell people that how you're living and the things you're suffering from are not normal. And more than just proclaiming our diagnosis and saying that you're sick and you have a disease, he did better than human doctors because he and he alone was able to heal us. We see this healing in Psalm 107, continuing in verses 19 and 20. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, from their physical pain. And he sent on his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destruction. So this is the second point today that we see here. See that our, while our disease has deadened us, our healer has come. Jesus has come to heal us. 
And time and time again in the New Testament, so we see the psalmist use this word, he sent out his word and he healed them. In the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the word of God. The word of God came in Jesus Christ. And so here in the Old Testament, we see this almost prophetic saying that there's gonna be a broken people who are healed by the word of God. And in the New Testament, we see the word of God, what it says in the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, as Jesus did his ministry, the word of God began to heal people. And the common thought around that, that era of human history is that any sort of healing was ge- genu- generally connected with magic. If you said the right incantation, if you had the right kind of medium, whether it's like smearing magical paste on someone or doing this right steps, then you would be healed. But Jesus came not as a force of magic, but as the source of true healing. I love the story in John chapter five, where it says this. So this is in John, so it's talking about Jesus' life, and it says, now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, so kind of this cascading pool, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And so here we have in these pools, uh, there is this magic in these pools. And when the waters would be stirred by something, it was probably a natural spring, and when the spring began to spit up some extra minerals and the water looked like it was moving, the common thought was if, if the invalids, if those who were suffering with diseases got into that water, they would be healed. Some spirit or some god was stirring up this magic potion in this water and all they had to do was get into it and they would be healed. We continue in the story, it says this. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Isn't it interesting? We don't know his name. We just know he's, he's sick. We know he's broken. We know he's an invalid. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What do you think the guy says to a question like that? 38 years being an invalid and this random guy comes up and he's like, hey man, you want to be healed? It's like walking up to a homeless man in downtown Missoula be like, would you rather live in a house? It just seems so rude, doesn't it? To ask that, so obvious. And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm other steps down before me. And so he says, random guy, look at me. That water can move all at once, but I can't get into it. And no one's going to take me there. No one's going to pick up my lame body and lay me in the water. And even if I get down there, there's going to be a rush of able-bodied men who try to get in it before me. But the story continues. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine seeing this? Everyone's hoping for this water. And what's this guy hoping for? He's just hoping that this Jesus guy will be kind to him and carry him down to the water. But Jesus doesn't need magic to heal anyone because magic isn't real. But what is real is the word of God who became flesh. And he doesn't need water or mud or anything else to heal people because he is the source of true healing. And he speaks it. And the man gets up and walks. 
You see, Jesus wasn't concerned that this man had no ability to heal himself. He wasn't concerned that he couldn't get into the water. He wasn't concerned about the amount of people who would try to get into it before this because Jesus came to be his cure. And time and time again, in the Gospels, we see stories of multitudes and multitudes coming to Jesus for healing. And it goes, the authors go to great lengths to say all that those who came to Jesus were healed. You see, unlike the physicians of that day who extorted people for vast amounts of money and then did basically witchcraft on them, and unlike the ritualists who would conjure up these schemes like the Pool of Bethesda, Jesus healed all who came to him without exception, without running dry, without charging a penny. Why? Why was the healing ministry of Jesus so central to his life here on earth? Was it because he, he came to show us that healthy, able living is really the key to true happiness? Because there are sects and cults of Christianity that say that when Jesus healed people, it's just saying that people who are really saved will have no physical disabilities because Jesus came to kill them. You won't get sick. You won't have handicaps. You'll live happy and healthy and wise if you love Jesus. Is that why Jesus came to heal people? Should we just obsess over health? Should we all become doctors so that we could save people by teaching them how to walk? See, in Luke 10, Jesus uh, sends out his 72 disciples and he sends them out and gives them two commands. He says, go and preach the gospel and heal people. He gives, like, he kind of tells these people what they should do when they're healing people. Can you imagine if, if I said to you as this holy figure, go and heal somebody? <laughs> Look, I got this. And so here's Jesus, the divine God, and he says, go heal people. And he kind of tells them what to expect. And he says this in Luke 10, verse 9. Heal the sick in it, or heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Why do you think he said that? Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What Jesus is saying is that physical healing was connected to a different kingdom. A kingdom which in Jesus was coming near. You see, there was a world where all of the sicknesses and diseases and lameness and muteness and deafness didn't exist. And as that kingdom got nearer, those signs and symptoms of sin didn't stand a chance before it. You see, Jesus healed not because he had magical powers. Jesus healed because with Jesus came the real presence of the kingdom of God. With Jesus came not something which was abnormal. With Jesus came the restoration of what is normal. True life in the real presence of God himself. Jesus came to expose the world that sin had distorted the physical signs of healing were really a symptom of a spiritual disease, a problem which was solved by one thing, access to God through Jesus. Where Jesus came, sin died. Where the presence of God was, cancer fled. Where the kingdom of God dwelled, people walked, people saw, people spoke, and people heard with great clarity. You see, we get so caught up in a world which tells us that the cure for what ails us is found in sex and money and power and entertainment. Tonight, we're probably light on menfolk because it's the kickoff to the NFL season tonight. And I was a guy who I would always say football wasn't my idol, but it would become something where if I had a rough week, if I had things spiraling out of control in my life, all I wanted to do was sit down and watch football and that would bring me peace. 
That's dangerous language, isn't it? Especially when your team's the Titans. But the world tells us to do that. That's what marketers get at. Stop fearing loneliness. Stop fearing sickness. Stop fearing being rejected. Stop fearing not being cool. Stop fearing being irrelevant. And instead, do this, eat this, wear this, act like this, sleep with this person. And they say, that's how you get healed. You feel empty. You feel lonely because you're, you're, you're broken and you need these things to be fixed by what I offer. But if this world that we live in isn't the ideal world, it's not going to offer the ultimate cure. If this world isn't what the good and great God designed for our best, then it's not going to give us the best. How many of you have watched Stranger Things so far? Only like three of you. Great. This is going to go over really well. So in Stranger Things, you see uh, it's kind of this sci-fi Goonies, Indiana Jones, alien film. And uh, in it, you see this portrayal of two worlds. You see the real world, and you see what they call the upside down. This isn't a spoiler, but in the upside down, it's exactly like the real world, but it's darker. It's scarier. There's fear. There's a perversion of life. And it stands opposite to the real world. But when Jesus came to heal the sick, to open the eyes of the blind, and to lift up the lame, he came to expose the fact that we live in the upside down. We don't live in the real world. We live in a world which is real. We live in a world which really matters, which really exists. But this isn't the best world. This isn't the perfect solution. This isn't what's meant to satisfy us because there is something better. There is the perfect world. We spend life living below paradise, not inside of it. But what Jesus came to do was to open our eyes, not to see life around us, but to see true life in Christ so that we could find meaning and value and worth in living with God forever. Instead of trying to consume enough here on earth to sustain us for a mere 80 years. You see, we live in the problem. And that problem lies deep inside our hearts. And that's why Jesus came. In Mark 2, we see a story of the Pharisees, the, the righteous men of the day, scoffing at Jesus because he came and he's meeting with the tax collectors who are essentially the robbers, the extortioners for money. He's hanging out with prostitutes and low lives. But Jesus says this in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. When Jesus heard what they were saying, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. See, this picture of Jesus doesn't quite match up with the cultural narrative that surrounds religion or the gospel. And if it does, we all find ourselves in the other camp, right? We're not a sinner. I don't need Jesus. We're not sick. I don't need a physician. But Jesus didn't come to save those who thought they were okay. Jesus didn't enhance the lives of those who are already living mediocre lives. Jesus came to save those who were dead in their sin and didn't know it. You see, we spend our lives trying to find this joy and satisfaction in these mere 80 years, trying to maybe prolong death just enough time that we could squeeze the last bit of life out of it. That fails to acknowledge our greatest problem. Because you realize Jesus really raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. 
and Lazarus still died. Jesus didn't come to make your physical life the best. Jesus didn't come so you could have physical life simply forever, and that would be it. Because one day, unless the core problem is addressed, you're going to die. You're going to go in the ground, and you're going to cease to exist. And what we need to be saved from is not the raw physicality of this world, but the broken and rebellious heart, which hauls us not into lifeless existence, but either into eternal damnation or eternal life in the presence of God himself. As he, Paul in Romans calls Jesus both the just and the justifier. To use medical terms, he's saying that Jesus is both health and the healer. He is the one who is himself perfect, but he's also the one who makes perfect. He is the one in him, who in himself has no sickness, but he also takes away the sickness of others. There's a guy named Augustine who was a pastor um, of the Christian church only a few hundred years after Jesus was around. And he really loved this theme of, of he called it, uh, sin as a disease and, the, and grace as a healer. And I love this quote here from Augustine. It says, The wisdom of God in healing man has applied himself to his cure, being himself healer and medicine both in one. We used our immortality, speaking of our life in the garden, we used our immortality so badly as to incur the penalty of death. Christ used his mortality so well as to restore us to life. He was born of a woman to deliver us who fell through the woman. He came as a man to save us who are men, as a mortal to save us who are mortal, by death to save us who were dead. And in Augustine's words, we can almost hear the echo of Peter as he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1 or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 22, where he says, He committed no sin, speaking of Jesus, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. See, we all will experience pain. We'll experience that emotional hurt. We'll all feel physical pain. We'll all feel the side effects of sin, and we feel it because we live in a world where sin exists and because this world is sinful. But because Jesus came and he died for us, that pain, that brokenness, that emptiness, that longing, that silent suffering often stands as a great reminder that someone came to take away that pain. That maybe for 80 years we'll suffer a little, but in eternity the burden has been removed. To become aware of pain in your own life is actually a sign that we can be aware to the solution and the remedy. Though sin is not ideal, sin points us to the need of the one who takes it away. We brought sin and we brought disease and on the cross, Jesus paid for the penalty it brought. 
He took away the symptoms and he took away the final end. He suffered the life lived in sin and he died the death that sin bought. And on the cross, Jesus waged war against our body of sin, our physical body of sin, so that he might do away with our death. Jesus solved that problem on the cross, but even better than that, he rose again on the third day so that he might infuse us with the true power of life. I don't know how many of you have lost loved ones to cancer, but I remember uh, when my grandpa, I love my grandpa. My grandpa is uh, probably the main reason I became a pastor. He loved Jesus. I remember uh, he would always go up to his pastor after his pastor spoke, and he's like, Pastor, you told them about Jesus today. Now I want my grandpa to be able to say that after every time I preach. And I remember as my grandpa was uh, dying of cancer and they were doing chemotherapy on him, uh, he just, he's just this big man, this 6'4 man, this strong guy, and he just got weaker and weaker and weaker. And the very thing that we were hoping would save him, this chemo, which was attacking the cancer, which was attacking his body, was making him weak. It was making him frail. But I said, if, if that chemo saved my grandpa, we would have all rejoiced. If my grandpa survived but existed in a new form of weakness, but was there with us and was cognitive and had the ability to come back to health, it would have still been a good thing. But see, Jesus, our true healer, is a greater healer than even chemotherapy, which saves those who have been stricken with what often is a definite death sentence. You see, he does more than weaken us in order to fight our disease. He kills us because our disease needs to be killed. He attacks the source of our heart and he slays it on the cross. But rather than leaving us in a dead and weak state, he provides for us life and life abundantly, which is tied to the Christ who died and then rose again. Romans 6.4 says this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, we all have life right now, but it's a life limited. And we all know that because we're all seeking something else. None of us are perfectly content sitting here. We want something else to satisfy us, something else to bring us joy, something else to set us apart. We all want to be original. And you could spend your life trying to find thousands of ways and thousands of things and thousands of people trying to find your way back into that pool. And you may find something that allows you to float for a little bit. But unless that thing is really life-giving, it's going to sink you. And the thing you desire with all of your heart, unless it's found in Jesus Christ, will ultimately prove to expose your end. We're all on a quest to find something more. But Jesus has come so that we might live as something more. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess with our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, to heal us from all unrighteousness. If you want life today, the world's going to tell you it's got lots of band-aids lots of things that satisfy, lots of things which cure. But if you want the true cure, look to Christ. And when we've looked to him, we get that newness of life. This is what the, the psalm closes with, verses 21 and 22. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. 
You see, when chemo patients are brought back to life from cancer, though they're weak, they know joy. When believers are brought back from the verge of death by Jesus Christ, they know songs of joy and they have a greater ability to sing it because they have life and life abundantly. Once we were sick, but by the power of Christ, we now have new health. And that's the last point today is that our lives cannot be lame. And I don't mean that in terms of lameness. I mean that in terms of our staticness. I mean that in terms of our ability to remain tied to a bed and inactive. Because if you're doing what the world is calling you to do, you might think you're living, you might think you're doing things, but you're really not. You see, the gospel is distinct because it addresses the sickness that we ourselves could never solve and it brings true life and true joy that we never could have attained. Dead men don't heal themselves. Paralytics don't swim. Lame men don't stand up. But in the gospel, Jesus has raised us by his own power. I love the scene in Forrest Gump. Quick quiz. How many of you have seen Forrest Gump? Okay, good. I was looking today at how old I'm getting and how few things I have in common with you people. Um, But uh, by the way, you guys are part of Generation Z. I didn't know it existed, but that's what you are. So you Generation Z people, the majority of you have seen Forrest Gump. And I love the scene where um, young Forrest is walking with Jenny and the kids just start throwing rocks at him. And Jenny says the famous line, run, Forrest, run. He's got these braces on his leg. He starts to hobble. And you're just like, there's no hope for this dude. Those guys are going to catch him. They're going to beat him. They're going to shame him. They're going to mock him. We already feel bad for this, this mentally kind of handicapped, physically handicapped boy. And we see him running and those braces just slow him down. We know if he keeps at that pace, he's going to be overcome. But then he starts to move his legs normally, begins to bend his knee, and piece by piece, we start to see these braces fall off of his legs. And right before our eyes, we see these weak legs, which were once bound to braces, begin to run in proper form, and they run as if they had always been healthy, and he begins to run and run and run, and his face turns from one of terror to one of joy, and then it flashes to Forrest as he's telling this story to a lady on a bench, And he says, from that day on, if I was going somewhere, I was running. You see, we have been delivered from a greater disease in a similar way. But our freedom didn't come from the bending of our knee, but by the bowing of Christ who took on flesh to suffer for us and brought us new life by rising for us. And today stands before you the opportunity of living in lameness or taking the work of Christ as your own and running for the first time and living in a way you've never lived and doing things you've only dreamt of doing and finding satisfaction the world promises but never pays. And I can promise you there is nothing better than the healing that comes by Christ. We might be the sickest, most injury-riddled, most cancer-stricken body the world has ever known, but if we have been healed by our disease of sin, we have a greater joy and a greater life than the greatest athlete who has rejected Christ. You may not be aware of your need for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the reality is he died for you. And that gospel is yours to be relieved. The offer of true life, great contentment, and lasting joy still stands. So take up and believe. Turn to Christ. Lay down your mat and run. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have healed us. Lord, I pray for that, uh, 
that feeling that we all dread to be true in our hearts. No one likes going to the doctor to find out something's wrong. And everyone hates that here on earth because we're not sure any doctor can do anything about it. But Lord, I pray that you press upon us the reality that something's wrong in our hearts. And we know it because death is coming. But Lord, I pray that you take those who have fallen down, who are sad, who are stricken with the affliction of this world, and you rise them up saying that there is a true and certain offer of healing which stands for them. A true offer of joy, a true offer of life, where they never have to feel disconnected no matter how their body is because they've been brought to eternal life, they've been brought back to the normal, they've been given true joy and life and life abundantly. Lord, I pray that we rejoice with joy and sing songs of praise of the God who has redeemed us. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, for he has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. In your name, amen.